Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are winding down our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 35, verses 22 to 29. He titles this lecture, The Wicked Prince, because this is the passage where Reuben goes and lays with his father's concubine, Billa. As always, we want to thank you for listening. And if you've been helped by this podcast, we would love for you to share it with your friends and family, those who you think would find it helpful. And with that, here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 35 on the wicked prince, Reuben. We're coming down to the end of the story of Jacob, and we're in chapter 35, verses 21 and 22. I'll read that. Now Israel departed and spread his tent beyond Migdal Eder, which means herd tower. And it was, it came to pass, when Israel was dwelling in that land, Reuven went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard. And then that's where it breaks off. We'll talk about why that is in just a minute. Where we have come in the story is that we've come to Bethel, We've put away the false foreign gods. Jacob had failed to do that and brought distress in his household as a result. And we came to Bethel. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. God gave a blessing to Israel. Jacob, Israel, said that kings would come from him. And we looked at that last time, how Rachel, as she dies, giving birth to Benjamin and the various aspects of that. Son of my distress, almost always taken as an expression of self-pity, but in the theology of Genesis, actually an expression of hope, because it is through the distress of the woman that the seed of the woman comes into the world. And so if she says, son of my distress, that can just as easily be an expression of hope that the child that's being born is a special child, and since God had just said that kings would come from your loins, and since the Messiah is a king, and since Rachel is in great distress bringing forth the seed of the woman, son of my distress is certainly an appropriate title for the Messiah. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, but you can imagine that women in the Old Testament routinely had the hope that maybe my child, maybe my son, will actually be the Messiah. And so you get these messianic titles, which indirectly makes the point. This is a messianic name. Son of the woman's distress. That's a perfectly good name for Jesus. Not just son of righteousness, but also son of the woman's distress. And so for her to name him that, after just hearing a prophecy that kings would come from Jacob, and she's the one giving birth to the baby at the time, It's understandable that we should take it that way and not an expression that Rachel is just dying in self-pity and feeling sorry for herself. And the fact that the name is changed, or not really changed, although he's never called Benoni again, so maybe we should see it as a change, but it doesn't say a change. It simply says, she called his name Benoni, son of my distress, and his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. It does not say but. It is not an adversative in Hebrew. It's just the little old word and that connects almost every two sentences and phrases in the Bible. 
And only context tells you whether it's an and that adds something or an and that means something happens next or an and that implies a contrast. Well, there's no contrast implied here if we understand that son of the woman's distress is the Messiah. Obviously, son of the right hand is the Messiah. The Messiah sits at God's right hand. We come to Psalm 110 today in the liturgy, and it says, sit on my right hand. Or at least the Lord said to my Lord. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're talking about sitting at the right hand. Psalm 2. The Messiah sits at the right hand. So again, Benjamin's given this kingly name. And we traced that some last week. That Benjamin, given the kingly name, given two kingly names, two messianic names, comes forward into Saul, the first king of Israel. And then, of course, we will also find that Judah is made a king and prophesied that kings would come from him. And from Judah comes David who replaces Saul. Now, we have to review that a little bit to understand what happens next. And I'll put it up on the board since I don't have it here in the notes. Reuben is firstborn. That means he should be the ruler of this clan after Jacob dies. He's firstborn, so he's in line for the throne. He is the prince. However, Simeon and Levi have gotten involved in all of these murders, and the brothers have gotten involved in selling Joseph off into Egypt. Jacob thinks they murdered him, or thinks that they let him get murdered, didn't protect him. And he suspects them. And although Reuben wasn't directly involved in the slaughter of the men of Shechem, it does say that all the brothers or the other brothers, went and fell upon the rest of the city. Jacob's sons came up on the corpses and plundered the city. Reuben would be involved in that. Now we have a promise that a king will come, and we get Benjamin. Joseph is gone. Benjamin is a replacement for Joseph as head of the chief wife. Reuben is disqualified in the eyes of his father. So Benjamin is a replacement for Reuben. Reuben's a grown man by this time, near 30. But now this baby comes. It's a prophecy of a king. He's given two kingly names, especially son of the right hand. Now that's clear. Right-hand man means crown prince. So Benjamin means crown prince. Benjamin is replacing Reuben. Reuben is being set aside. Joseph is already dead and gone. And Benjamin's replacing Joseph. Those brothers probably thought, well, at least Rachel doesn't have any more children. Now Rachel's got another child. And now Reuben understands that Benjamin is the one who's going to be king. He's the one. That's what the name means. That is what sets us up for this next story about Reuben. These look like isolated incidents here in this chapter 35, but they're not. Each thing leads to the next one. And before we end this, Benjamin gives birth to King Saul. But Saul, because of his sin, is set aside, and he's replaced by David, who is of Judah. So this theme happens again. The one who should be king sins, 
as a replacement, Benjamin. From Benjamin comes Saul, but Saul sends as a replacement David. David comes from Judah. Now, actually, this runs full circle. Now, to show you this, Judah is one of the people involved in these sins here in Genesis. Judah is involved in getting rid of Joseph. Judah is involved in falling on the town of Shechem after Simeon and Levi do. Judah is involved in getting married into Canaanite women. And then Judah repents, and that's in Genesis 38. And Genesis 38 shows Judah repenting. So initially he's crossed off, but then he repents. And then when they go to Egypt, it's actually Judah who steps in to protect Benjamin and leads the brothers in repenting before Joseph. So although these brothers are set aside initially in favor of Benjamin, Benjamin sins in Saul, and they're replaced by these first brothers who've now repented. So repentance means you can get back into the picture, essentially. If you take the long story here, the fact that David replaces Saul, and we come back to Judah. Why? Because Judah repented. Repentance means you can get back into the picture after you sin. Well, all of that is the future, but it shows us what is coming out of this initial story here. What we got right now is the firstborn son who has always been a little bit thwarted, definitely thwarted as we find out in a couple of chapters by the fact that Joseph was favored and Joseph was given the special robe. And it doesn't take any imagination. I mean, I can prove this easily, but the special robe means that you're being treated as the crown prince. So for Joseph to have the special robe, then he has the dream that his brother's going to be bound down to him. So he's definitely the crown prince at that point, and we get rid of him. So now Reuben is once again the crown prince. Now we got Benjamin. So what does Reuben do? Reuben seizes the prerogatives of being the crown prince or king. He seizes the prerogatives of being a king. That's what this action indicates. Reuben's action sleeping with Bilhah, his father's concubine, indicates that he is in a power struggle with his father, and it corresponds to Esau struggling with Jacob in Rebekah's womb. That's in terms of this chiastic structure that's way back here in the beginning. We're moving back out of this story. D, a struggle for dominance, is Jacob and Esau back in 25-22. D prime, struggle for dominance, is Reuben and Jacob, people are still struggling with Jacob, trying to pull him down and take what he has. And in this case, it's his son who does it. It's his grown son. Remember, Reuben has to be near 30 by this point. And he sleeps with the concubine. Now, how do we know that's a power struggle? In our world, it would just be sex. She's cute. How cute could she be? She's much older. But Somehow or other, if you made a movie out of it today, it would all be lust. But that's not really what this is about entirely. That probably is part of it. Who knows? We're not told. It doesn't say he thought she was beautiful or his heart clung to her or that she was desirable. Or like the story of David's sons when Amnon wants Tamar, he says, she's pretty and I want her. Nothing like that said here. That's not in focus. What's in focus is the act itself. Well, well, the next thing that we can see here is, as we move toward explaining it in a bit more detail, 
the end it just says Israel heard. I've got here in the notes, and Jacob heard. Literally, it's and Israel heard. That seems incomplete. And we know that in chapter 49, Jacob will pronounce a curse on Reuben for this action. Reuben seals his doom by doing this. Reuben, my firstborn you, my might, first fruit of my vigor. See all these things that would have made him crown prince here in chapter 49, verse 2. Surpassing in loftiness, surpassing in force, headlong like water. I mean, everything here is good. He is my firstborn. My might, the first fruits of my vigor, surpassing in loftiness, the greatest of the brothers, surpassing in force, strong as rushing water. Well, surpass no more, for when you mounted your father's bed, you defiled it, he mounted the couch. This is poetry. We know what it alludes to. Reuben's judged for it. If Jacob did anything at this time, we're not told about it. But this language is parallel to what we read just a little bit ago, if we were reading this all together. We would have heard that when Shechem slept with Jacob's son Dinah, and the word came to Jacob, and there's again a sexual situation here, it says in chapter 35, Jacob heard, chapter 34, verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah. And his sons were in the livestock in the fields. Jacob kept silent till they came home, and then he talked to them. In the case of Dinah, Jacob heard, and then waited for his sons to act since they were part of Israel. But here we read, Israel heard. Maybe the story that's left for a novelist to imagine is that Israel or Jacob brought it to the attention of the other brothers, and they did something or didn't do something, or whatever. We're not told. This indicates something that I think we can also say. Obviously, there's all kinds of stories in history in the 150 years of Jacob's life that we don't know anything about. This might have been a huge crisis here. There might have been all kinds of things going on as a result of it. There might have been a big fight. Not even charges and countercharges. Bill might have become pregnant and had a child and it died. I mean, we don't know. We're not told any of that stuff. And over the years, I'm sure Jacob, during the 77 years he was growing up with Esau in the home before he left home to get a wife, probably had lots of adventures. Maybe he traveled to Mars and came back. We don't know. We're not told all those things. We're only told specific things for specific reasons. This is all we need to know about this. Reuben is trying to take over his father's position. Jacob heard about it. Whether he did anything about it at the time, we don't know. Commentators imagine that once again Jacob didn't do anything about it. He never does anything to restrain his kids. Well, maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Irrelevant. All that's relevant is what Reuben does that causes him to be set aside, specifically. He's set aside, Simeon and Levi are set aside, and then the question comes to Judah. Judah also sins, but Judah repents. That's the order of the sons of Jacob, starting with the firstborn. And we have understood a little bit about why Reuben feels motivated to do this, because his position as crown prince is definitely threatened and in question. So he does something that another crown prince is going to do later on to show everybody that he really is a crown prince after all, and he's tough. 
And he's laying claim to the position. Why did Simeon and Levi sin first? We don't know. My guess is, I said this at the time, but it's only a guess, the fact that Reuben was not directly involved in their act of vengeance, he probably didn't really think that's what they ought to do. Firstborn children tend to be more cautious, just by nature. So you read the birth order book or something like that, and you find that out. If you weren't one yourself, you find it out. They tend to be more cautious. Reuben was probably more cautious, and that's why these two younger boys did it. But of course, we don't read that Reuben opposed them, and now we have something very specific that Reuben did that disqualifies him. Who was Bilhah? I can never remember which maid was Zilpah and which was Bilhah. Which one was Leah's and which one was Rachel's. I have to look it up every time. You'd think after teaching through this I would know it, but I can't ever remember it, so I've given up. So I looked it up. Bilhah, in case you're wondering, was Rachel's maid. And so this is an indirect assault on Rachel. You're going to pick one of the two concubines to sleep with. Which one do you pick? The one who belongs to your own mother? Boy, that would be close to incest. This is bad enough as it is. That would be even closer to incest. Or the other mother that you don't really like, the usurper. You know, all these sons of Leah thought that their mother should be the queen. And they viewed Joseph as a usurper. And now they view Benjamin as a usurper. And they view Rachel as a usurper against their own mother Leah. And Leah had all these kids and she had all the potency. She had lots of kids. So she was bigger and better and more important than poor old Rachel who only had one and then she had another one. Never had two at the same time. Well, so they resent Rachel and this is indirectly an attack on Rachel. I don't think there's any reason not to see that as part of it. Whatever was in his mind or loins, the fact is, in terms of the structure of things, he's attacking his father and he's attacking Rachel's memory. She's not around anymore. He couldn't have done this anyway with her. So he is again attacking the queen. With Rachel dead, Bilhah might have ascended to the position as queen, especially if Leah was already dead, which we don't know. We don't know if Leah is alive at this point or not. We don't know when Leah dies. She might already be dead. And if she is, well, then there's these two other women left. Let us say we can. this is just a scenario. If we were making a movie or writing a novel, we would we could fill this in, but we can't know here in Sunday school if it's true or not. But if both Leah and Rachel are dead now, and you've got Zilpah and Bilhah, which one of them is going to be most important wife? Rachel's concubine or Leah's concubine? Well, chances are Rachel's concubine will step into the first wife position. And if that's so, then she's the one you want to be involved with if you want to declare and let everybody know that you intend to take over. You sleep with the number one queen wife to say, I intend to be the next king. As we'll see in just a minute, that's what this means. Uh huh. Well, that's the difficulty. Some passages look like Rachel is queen. Some passages look like Leah is queen. And I think that that's because they both really are. <laughs> but yeah, Rachel has been buried near Bethlehem on the way there. Leah, whenever she dies, is buried in the official tomb. Which means she probably died while they were living there. I guess they could have embalmed Rachel and taken her there. Why they didn't? It's a good question. 
But a pillar was put there. Maybe not. But this was a large, wealthy group of people. And they probably knew the science of the times about as well as anybody else. That would be my first guess. But those are always good questions. Why wasn't Rachel put in the family tomb, too? She is given a pillar. and She's given a separate position. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to some of these other things, either. But we think about them a bit. We get some wisdom. Here we come to the other passages that talk about this. Lying with another man's wife or concubine is a signal that one hopes or intends to replace that man. Now, I think what's important here is Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, how do you hear about something like that? I guess we could imagine they were intense and it wasn't all that private and everything, but you can always keep things private. Somehow or other, it was intended for this to become known. Reuben went and told the other brothers that this is what I've done and I am laying claim. See, I'm filling this in, but I feel very confident about this. If this little Benjamin baby thinks he's going to grow up and be the king, I want all you other brothers to know, I've staked my claim. Hey, me and Bilhah, this is my way of staking a claim to being next in line. So he let it be known. It was no good doing this if you didn't let it be known. Any of you guys want to fight me for this? I've already slept with daddy's concubine here. And that's a sign I'm going to take over his house, as we'll see. So I think he lets it be known, and of course eventually secrets held by more than one person are held by everybody sooner or later, and of course that happens here. Now just so that we have in our ears as well as in our notes the other passages that show this kind of thing, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see this once the kingdom comes in, that's where we begin to see this behavior. 2 Samuel 3, 6 and following. Now, what has happened here in context is, Saul died. The northern tribes made Saul's son, Ishbosheth their king. And the southern tribes, Judah and Simeon, made David their king. So right now we've got two kings and two nations. And everybody's saying to David, go ahead and fight Ishbosheth and take it over, unite the kingdom. And David says, no, I wouldn't kill Saul and take the kingdom from him. And I'm not going to kill Saul's son and take the kingdom from him. Well, Abner, of course, was Saul's commander. And Abner is now working for Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, in the northern tribes. And King Ishbosheth has him as his army commander. And 2 Samuel 3 is part of this story. And it says in verse 6, It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. And Saul had had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. She's going to be important later on. She's the one who drives the birds away when Saul's sons are hung up for the birds to eat after they're killed for their involvement in murdering the priests. I hope you remember that story. We don't have time to go through that one. That's one of the lesser known stories. But she stays out there day after day and drives the birds away so they don't eat up the corpses of her relatives. So here we meet her for the first time. Saul had had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Well, now, why would he do that? Because she's cute? Well, maybe. But not in these power-driven situations. It has something to do with power. 
Well, then he says, how dare you accuse me of this? But the Bible has already said Abner was making himself strong. Abner is thinking, you know, this young guy, Ishbosheth, he may be the son of Saul, but he isn't much. And maybe I'll just take this over from him. And so he sleeps with Saul's concubine, which is a way of letting everybody know, hey, you know, if you get tired of Ishbosheth, I'm involved with Saul's women. I can take Saul's place in bed. I can take Saul's place on the throne. That's what this involves. Jesus, when he becomes king, marries us as his bride. An attack on Jesus' bride is a usurpation of Jesus' place. That's what's happening here. Ishbosheth isn't dumb enough to let this go by. Now, Abner professes innocence. Hey, Abner is very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? All these Judahites are dog's heads. Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with the guilt concerning the woman. And then he says, I'm not going to work for you anymore. I'm going to give the kingdom to David. So he goes over to David's side. But you see, we are told in the text by the Holy Spirit that Abner was really making a power grab here. And when his power grab failed, then he turned against Ishbosheth and went over to David. That's what it means to sleep with the concubines. I need to inject something here, a point I didn't make when I actually gave the lecture, and that is that Abner may well have been innocent. Ishbosheth may have been foolishly charging him, and his anger may have been justified. Either way, the point is established. To sleep with the king's concubine, the former king's concubine, is to make a move toward his place. We'll return now to the lecture. We see exactly the same thing in 1 Kings 2.22. And this is the story of the death of Adonijah. David has two sons here that are vying for the throne. His firstborn Amnon is dead, and then Absalom is dead, and then we have another Absalom whose name is Solomon. Solomon and Absalom are really the same name, pretty much. Absalom means my father is peace, and Solomon is just the second half of that. Absalomon and Solomon. So Solomon is a replacement for Absalom, and we'll look at him in just a minute. But we've also got a son named Adonijah. And these other sons are older. I don't remember all the names, but here we have all these sons. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven or so. And they're all born to David even before he becomes king. And so the whole time David is king, these sons are growing up. And now, this is 40 years after David has become king. Oh, Adonijah, he's maybe 45 years old. But way down here somewhere in the 30th year of David's reign, oh, well, maybe earlier than that, 20th year, he gets involved with Bathsheba and has Solomon. So Solomon is born way later down here. Solomon's only about 20 years old. Well, what do these older sons think? Well, they think the same thing as Reuben thought about Benjamin. David has obviously picked Solomon, and the prophets have as well. And, well, they resent him. They're going to have to go along with it. Bathsheba is now first wife, but they don't like it. And so Adonijah thinks, you know, there's something I can do here to kind of make me a place. And if I can stir up people against Solomon the same way Absalom stirred people up against David, then maybe I can shove Solomon out and I can throw my hat in the ring right now if I can sleep with David's concubine. Now this concubine is the chubby 
young girl who slept in David's bed to keep him warm when he was old. Whether there was any sex, we don't know. This being the ancient world, well, we'll pass over that question. People always want to know, and since the Bible doesn't say, they ain't any answer. We don't know. Shouldn't have been, but maybe there was. One thing's for sure, she was keeping him warm, because he was old and cold. She was warm and plump and young. Well, now, she's the one, see, the most recent woman involved with David. And Adonijah comes and says, hey, can I have her? First Kings chapter 2, verse 12. Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that's one of the other wives of David, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, you come in peace? And he said, I come in peace. And he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, go ahead. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom was turned about and became my brother's. So that was from the Lord, and I accept that. It's okay. It's how it has to be. But I have one request of you. Please don't refuse me. And she said to him, speak. And then he says, please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. Now, big deal. In the modern world, we'd say, okay, her husband's dead. You want her? You can have her. Go back to wherever you're from and live there and be strong and prospering and whatever. No problem. But no, that doesn't mean that. And instantly, they respond this way. Verse 18, Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king for you. Well, she's not dumb. Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king rose to meet her and bowed before her and sat on his throne. And he had a throne set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. And she said, I'm making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. Do not turn away my face. And the king said to her, Ask my mother, I will not turn away your face. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. I don't think Bathsheba was so dumb as to not realize what this meant. She just does it in such a way as to provoke Solomon to action. Solomon answered and said to his mother, Why are you asking for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom. You might as well ask the whole kingdom for him, because he's my older brother. Ask it for him, for Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Now, in context, old Abiathar, the old high priest, and Joab, bad old Joab, they're backing Adonijah. They're the ones who've given him this idea, probably. King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who have established me and set uh, me on my throne of David my father, who has made me a house as he promised, surely Adonijah will be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him, so he died. Well, that's a little bit of a strong response. But it's high treason. And this man knew what he was doing. He was risking all. In a bid, he intended to kill Solomon. Got to. If you take over the crown, you've got to kill the other guys. And so Solomon knows this for what it is. This is no innocent request. You want the old man's concubines. You want the old man's position. Adonijah apparently thought that Bathsheba was dumb. Maybe she was. Maybe she was an airhead. But whether she was or not, Solomon didn't go along with it. Now, finally, the story that you're familiar with, of course, in 2 Samuel 16, 
when Absalom rebels against David and he takes the capital city and he gets some advice that would be good or bad, the advice of Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 16.20 Absalom said, How can I secure my presence now as the king now that I've driven David out? Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. And the hand of all who are with you will also be strengthened. Now this will really foul things up. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. He went inside the tent, and everybody knew what that meant. Whatever he did in there, if anything, doesn't matter. The symbolism is what mattered, what people saw. So that's what that means. You're taking over the kingship. Reuben knows that. We just don't live in that kind of society where we think this way, but back then they did. And Jacob understands what it means, and all the other brothers understand what it means, and it means that Reuben is laying claim to crown prince position because that's threatened now by the birth of Benjamin. So I've got down here F. Remember that Joseph is gone and Benjamin is now son of the right hand, the promised king. Reuben is actually seeking to displace Benjamin as Esau sought to displace his younger brother, Jacob. Any questions or comments on that story? I think we have explained it enough. All of these things show that this bunch of guys is in bad shape. They need to be saved. And that will be what Joseph does. Well, we're really getting to the end of this story now. Verse 22b to 26. A couple of comments we can say here and we can end this. And then we'll survey chapter 36. Got to do it. Even though it's just a list of Esau's family names. Yet that will be interesting to do next time. That says here in 22b, the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben's firstborn, Reuven, Shimeon, Levi, and Yehuda, Yisachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Yosef, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These were Yaakov's sons who were born to him in the country of Aram. Chiastically, this corresponds to the sons of Isaac who are introduced in 25, 20 to 21. And again, you can look at your chart for that. We won't hear. B, the number 12 is highlighted. Now at last, the covenant line has a set of 12 sons and becomes a nation. The first time we ran into this was Abraham's brother, Nahor. We have Abraham... And he's the covenant line, but he's really just got one. But his brother Nahor, he has twelve. And so he gets twelve first. And then you say, well, big deal. It just happens to be twelve kids here in 22, 20 to 24. But then you come down to Isaac, and he has two sons, only one of which count. And his brother Ishmael, he has exactly twelve sons. So each time... The other son, the ones who aren't chosen, they're becoming a nation first. They're becoming a nation first, and the covenant people are remaining a priestly people and not yet becoming a nation. So, as a priestly people to these nations. And now finally, we get to Jacob, and he has 12 sons. And we get to Esau, 
And Esau moves another step forward. He actually gets kings, real kings. He becomes a nation in a fuller sense. So the firstborn is replaced each time. But each time Abraham's firstborn brother, Nahor, he actually has more glory. And Ishmael, although he's replaced with Isaac, he gets more glory, 12 sons. Esau is replaced by Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, but Esau, he becomes a duke and a king. He's part of a real kingdom. So there's a reason for this. Part of it is that God's people can expect to get things later than the pagans do. Very often in history that's true. We have to be patient because we do things the right way, or we try to do things the right way. And if you do things the right way, if you do things the wrong way, you can get things real fast. You can steal. You can cheat. You can lie. You can make deals with the devil. And you can get all kinds of nice things much easier than if you won't do those things. So it takes longer. On the other hand, these twelve of Jacob will endure all the way down in history. And we won't hear any more about these twelve sons of Nahor. We won't hear very much about the twelve sons of Ishmael. One or two of them come up again. Those that get there first aren't necessarily the ones who endure to the end. But right now, this is something it means. Nahor gets this covenant, twelve sons. Abraham doesn't. Ishmael gets this covenant, twelve sons. Isaac doesn't. Now Jacob finally does. Now we have this twelve. But at the same time, Esau goes on to become involved in a more settled and directly kingly type of situation. The other thing it says here that needs to be commented on, it says that these sons were born to him in the country of Aram. Well, Benjamin was not born there. So the phrase is a summary. We don't need to say, oh, there's a contradiction in the text. No, it's just a summary statement. But the contrast is in 36 verse 5, which we would hear if we were reading all of this out loud. We would hear it in just about a minute and a half if we kept reading. It says in 36.5, These are Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. That's identically the same phrase. These Jacob's sons who were born to him in the country of Aram. These are Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Esau's sons are Canaanites. And Jacob's sons are not Canaanites. Jacob's sons are born outside and move in. And this anticipates the creation of a nation of Israel in Egypt, which then moves into Canaan and replaces it. So there's a prophetic type implied here. That's why we're told it. I mean, who cares? We already know this. The writer does not need to tell us these are Jacob's sons who were born to him in the country of Aram, especially since Benjamin wasn't born there, and he's listed here. So there has to be some pointed reason why we're told that. And the pointed reason why this superfluous information is included here is to contrast it with Esau's sons who were born in the land of Canaan. Right now, Canaan belongs to Esau. But it won't always. Because Jacob's household was multiplied outside the land and then came in. And if you're stuck in Egypt and you're thinking about going to the promised land, you can remember something about this. We've multiplied outside, but now we're coming in. And actually, if you want to think all the way back to the beginning, it says that God made Adam out of the dust, and then God planted a garden, and then God put Adam into the garden. So being made somewhere else and then being put into the garden is actually something that starts in the beginning in terms of the theme. Did you have a comment or a... When you're saying 
Oh, yeah, okay, good point. So we have to wait longer, we get what they got to Yeah, the wicked lay up an inheritance for the righteous. And so, yeah, these guys do all the work and then we just multiply and then we come in and it's given to us. That is what happens at the conquest of Canaan. But Ishmael was not wicked. No, Ishmael wasn't wicked. These are just cultures that form first, but I still think what we're being told here is that God is taking a longer time to grow this priestly nation because they have a more profound work to do. Yeah. Well, let me just finish out this chapter and then we'll be done. And we'll just look at Esau next week and we'll be really done. 27 to 29. Jacob came home to Isaac, his father, at Mamre in the city of Arba, Kiriath Arba, city of Arba, that is now Hebron. So Hebron and Kiriath Arba and Mamre are all the same place. Where Abraham, and it's called Hevron today, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. The days of Isaac were a hundred years and eighty years, and Isaac died. He died. And was gathered to his kinspeople, old and satisfied in years. Esau and Jacob, his sons, buried him. So they come together. A, the age and death of Isaac correspond to the age and offspring of Isaac in 25, 19 to 20. So again, if we looked at our chiastic structure, there's a link there. The story starts off by telling us Isaac's age and his genealogy. Here we're told his age and his sons. Chronologically, we looked at this a long time ago, but I'll just remind you of it. Joseph is in prison right now, and Isaac dies just before Joseph is let out. So if you start really comparing Scripture with Scripture, you can see just a hint that his death is somewhat sacrificial. When Isaac dies, there may be some type of relationship to that letting Joseph free. And the final comment I have down here, and the only other thing that I feel need to say here, is that Jacob and Esau were together for the burial indicates a full reconciliation between them as persons. doesn't mean that Esau was saved, but it does mean that the two of them were fully reconciled. And this struggle that began right at the beginning of the Jacob narrative has now come to a full resolution, at least in terms of history. They're getting along, and they're together burying their father, no longer struggling together about anything in particular. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.